0: Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. My name is Sarah Hopkins.
1: And I'm Amanda Noga, and these are conversations to elevate your health, relationships, and soul. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another epic interview episode of the Elevate Podcast. It's Amanda here, and today, Sarah and I got to speak to the extraordinary woman that is Jane Hardwick Collings. She's a midwife, a teacher, a writer, and she gives workshops all over the world teaching about the mother daughter preparations for menstruation, the sacred shamanic dimensions of pregnancy, birth, and menopause. So we got to chat about all of those really important rites of passage for, for women. Jane founded and runs the School of Shamanic Womancraft and I kind of think of her as a midwife for the soul. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. She is such a wise woman and I'm feeling so, so happy to be connected with her. She's one of those people that you just want to be close to. So enjoy this episode. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think and we'll see you on the other side. Hi Jane, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited for our listeners to be connected with your work and your wisdom. I feel like now at this incredibly potent time, your voice and your wisdom is needed more than ever. So I really, yeah, thank you for all that you do and for being with us.
2: Well, thank you Amanda. It's really an honor to be invited onto your podcast. I'm really glad to have this chance. Thank you so much.
1: I first stumbled across your work with your beautiful book, Ten Moons, and this was actually long before I was pregnant and just kind of being obsessed with everything to do with pregnancy and birth and all of those sort of mystical, magical things. I was actually at the time looking into doing your shamanic midwifery training, which I think now has been kind of reworked and renamed, but I know that you worked as a home birth midwife for many, many years here in Australia, but I'd love for you to give us a little bit of background on how you got to be working in these shamanic arts and teaching all about the the shamanic midwifery and dimensions of women's rites of passage and pregnancy and birth and menopause and of course periods as well.
2: Mm. How I got into what I'm doing now is the evolution of my life and my journey but it started back when I was doing my midwifery training when I was 25 and I, I was already a registered nurse and this is back in the day before nursing and midwifery was even in university so we were the We were the real workers back then, even scrubbing pans, bedpans and washing walls and stuff. Way back when I did my midwifery training as a 25-year-old in a big city hospital in Sydney, Australia, I had this uh, incredible experience of awakening, awakening from a slumber that I didn't even know I was having. Basically, what happened to me in my midwifery training was that I recognized that I was wearing a cloak of forget or that I was under a sleeping or slumber spell of the patriarchy. And I'm speaking metaphorically because I think that helps humans, well, it certainly helps me, understand what's going on. In a mythopoetic way, I woke up to the fact that I was living in a patriarchy and that women were being oppressed. Like, I knew that. I mean, I was living it, but I saw it so bad in the maternity care system. And what I saw was actually institutionalized acts of abuse and violence being done to women and babies masquerading as safety. So that's like I'm so I'm sixty one and that was when I was twenty five, so that's like thirty plus years ago. And things really haven't changed that much. I mean there's some pretty things that, that have changed and midwifery training today is all about women-centred care, but the uh, fact is that when midwives go and work in the hospitals to do their sort of practical, that what they're being taught is actually not what's going on in hospitals in the live delivery of maternity care. So, and the attrition rate, which means the number of people who leave midwifery during or just after their training is huge. So women and the men, few men that do midwifery training Uh, really, because of the attrition rates, they're not happy with serving the beast in the way that it is organised. What's that thing called? The conveyor belt system (laughs) of maternity care. Waking up to this situation as a 25-year-old, I finished my midwifery training and went straight out as an apprentice with the one of few home birth midwives that was working in Sydney. I worked with her for some time, nearly a year, and then I started my own practice as a home birth midwife. And then I had concurrently my own three babies, and that was a massive teaching as well. And when I was about 31 or 32, I started getting interested in shamanic practices I started learning about shamanic drum journeying I did a a vision quest and I joined a group of people who were basically practicing earth-based honoring lifestyles and at the same time I was independent home birth midwife and then I met which was really the a big turning point for me where my midwifery and my shamanic practices came together I met my teacher Janine Pavati-Baker over in America. I went to a conference there, a midwifery conference back in 1990, I think it was, and she had a pre-conference workshop on called Shamanic Midwifery and I thought, ooh, I want to go to that. And that was really when, for myself, the two loves of my life, the two things that I really felt passionate and interested in, midwifery and shamanic work, came together. I put shamanic and midwifery together. But really the shamanic dimensions, as I refer to it, which means what lay beneath anything, really became obvious to me when I gave birth to my first child, Sam, who's now 34. In my book, Ten Moons, thank you for mentioning that. I'm glad you liked it. I tell all my birthing stories, but... Just quickly, what I learned from my experience of birthing Sam, I was 27 at the time. What I learned was that from the experience I had, which was a fairly typically typical length of labor for a first baby, like a 24 hours plus, but I was trying to push him out. I didn't know it was a him at the time. I was trying to push his head out and I couldn't budge his head. You know, I tried to push for like four hours, couldn't budge his head. This was at a home birth. And I later realized that the head I couldn't budge was my own. So, you know, I was having the experience I needed to have, which is what I um, share with women. We have the birth we have to teach us what we need to learn about ourselves to take us to the next place on our journey. I learned that. Very clearly in birthing Sam because I ended up having a caesarean, a non-emergency caesarean in late labour to have him be born. And what I learned a little while later after I came out of my newborn bubble and started to think, oh, what, what has, what just happened then? How did that happen? Why did that happen? in that process, without even realizing it, had begun what's called a sacred wound excavation. So I learned so much through all of this. So basically, in asking of experience, how does this serve? What I realized was that the birth I had of Sam, so a laborer and then a cesarean, was exactly what I needed to have to teach me what that taught me, which was about surrender. Sam's birth taught me about surrender because I didn't do it. And I didn't even know that I didn't even know how to do it. It was one of those classic experiences of me realizing I hadn't been surrendering to anything for most of my life. And then as birth does, or as most other rites of passage do as well, because that's where the transformation happens, I learned at my rite of passage into motherhood that I needed to learn about surrender.
0: It's beautiful, by the way. I love the way that you've described that sort of learning experience through the birthing experience. And I think for most women, particularly the ones that end up with intervention in birth, it is surrender. So that's probably such a universal message amongst women experiencing that initial rite of passage of the first birth experience. So thank you so much for sharing that. Can you take a moment to talk us through the sort of three rites of passage that women primarily experience and sort of
2: what they are to yes. give some context for our listeners. Sure. And I want to come back to the surrender thing because it's not just sort of letting go to whatever needs to happen. Now, I mean like physically and yes. emotionally and all of that. Like, yes. so I want to talk about orgasm in relation to that. But yes, let me say about the rites of passage. So a rite of passage, there's all kinds of rites of passage there's um, the physical rites of passage that are often called the women's mysteries for women or the blood mysteries and then there's the cultural rites of passage which are things like first day at school marriage divorce new job all that kind of thing so they are equally impactful but physical rites of passage are physical transformation as well so there's these are our own birth so that's us being born, how an individual is born will impact them forever, all their life, especially in regard to their creative process, their creative act. And then the other or next rite of passage for a woman is the menarche or the rite of passage into womanhood, the first period. And for boys that would be puberty. The menarche, or menarchy or menarche, however you've been taught that that's to be said, for girls, young women, is something that happens. When you see the blood on your undies, it begins. So there's sort of a slow coming to that in terms of breast buds and changing shape and all that. But then the menarche is the first period. That's a huge rite of passage. And then I want to speak a little bit more of that. But just to say the next rite of passage is, birth, childbirth, and every pregnancy results in a birth. So that includes early pregnancy losses, which is what we say now instead of miscarriage, because miscarriage implies there's something wrong with the carriage, the mother, like there may not be, often isn't. So early pregnancy loss or any other pregnancy loss, including an abortion, which is a pregnancy that results in a birth. So the idea is with early pregnancy loss and with abortions, the early pregnancy loss and the abortion is the birth. So it needs to be taken into consideration when we think about what all our births have taught us, which is a really important thing to do, which I'll talk about again in a minute. So childbirth. And then for women who don't have babies, then when we go into the mother season of our lives, which happens at around 25 years old, whether you have babies or not, and goes until menopause, which the average age for that is 50, 51. So when we're in that mother season of our lives, we are the creatrix and we we conceive, gestate and birth all manner of things besides human babies. So for women who don't have babies, it will probably have birthed a career or a business or projects or gardens or whatever. So they can look at that version of birthing as part of their story of what their rites of passage have taught them. But then after birth, childbirth, there's the menopause, which is the finishing of our menstrual cycle and our fertility. And it's actually menopause is like a labor and a birth into the next version of ourselves, the wise woman's version of ourselves or the marga, the autumn woman that then goes on to the winter phase at around 70 of crone. And then the uh, last rite of passage, The death rite of passage in many of the traditional spiritual cultures is seen as the one that actually impacts the next life in those cultures and spiritual practices that believe in that. So it's also very impactful. And what many people say that everything prepares us for our death. Just to go back to the significance of our rites of passage and therefore the context of talking about it in terms of childbirth, The idea is that one rite of passage leads to the next and impacts the next. And what happens at a rite of passage is that whatever happens teaches us on a subliminal level. So, whatever happens or doesn't happen, whatever is said or not said, teaches us on a subliminal level, which means we don't even realize we're being taught how our culture values that next role and therefore how to behave to be accepted by that culture. Rites of passage create and reinforce culture on the inside by the mindset it creates, the beliefs, attitudes and fears that the experience creates and also on the outside creates culture and reinforces it by people conforming to whatever the status quo is that the rite of passage enables or creates. Menarch has a direct impact on childbirth. She who is initiated into womanhood at the altar of menarche is the woman that shows up to give birth at the birth altar, fully indoctrinated and brainwashed into being and behaving in the way that the culture expects a woman to behave. This doesn't mean everybody has that experience because our menarche experiences are different, but anybody who's kind of like 30 and older, probably hasn't had a very positive menarche experience. There will be some who did because their mothers were more awake than the culture, but it is changing now. And definitely it's a well-known thing that preparation for birth starts way, way back, you know, like in terms of what children know about birth, but especially at menarche. Childbirth as a rite of passage, what happens, what doesn't happen, what's said or not said, teaches us on a subliminal level how our culture wants us to behave as mothers in order to be accepted. And so what can happen at childbirth is just the reinforcing of the status quo of patriarchal culture, or a lot of women wake up before they have babies and go into the childbirth experience, seeing the culture that we're in and recognising what's going on that's really not okay. And then the other way with the childbirth uh, rite a passage can have a different effect is what's called a shadow awakening that's kind of a shamanic term a shadow awakening when um, which is what I was describing before about my birth with Sam when you have an experience that you weren't expecting or that traumatized you and you ask of it holy moly why did this happen and what is this teaching me about myself so it can be like the a whole a complete redirection, a paradigm shifting experience. So that's that's really um the story of our rites of passage, Sarah. So do you want to beautiful. Sort of, yeah. yeah,
0: beautiful. Oh, there's so much that I want to unpack and, you know, we'll probably sort of keep pivoting around these rich and deep topics. Um But in the context of, I suppose, health as one of the sort of three key foundations of the themes of our podcast, what sort of practices around health do you feel are most important for women at these times of their rites of passage or through these rites of passage, I suppose?
2: Yeah. Okay. So lots of basic stuff like nutrition and sleep and exercise and relationships and stuff but on top of that and I'll go into a little bit more detail about that but doing our inner work is probably the thing that's going to have the biggest impact in mm. especially around childbirth and menopause so when we when we're at, at menarche we're teenagers so average age is 13 we're really so under the influence of our parents or equivalent and our culture and our peers that doing our inner work is probably not going to be a thing that happens so it's it's a live work and working with that around pregnancy and birth is obviously more going to be more likely that women will do that kind of thing but Saying what I just said then about the inner work being the most, I think, the most impactful thing because your inner world is affecting your body and your psyche and everything that happens to you as well. So what I mean by doing your inner work is, in preparation for childbirth, is that you figure out what you're bringing to the birth. You know, like, what am I, what are the beliefs and attitudes and fears that I am basically probably unconsciously bringing to my experience of this pregnancy or this birth or my mothering and to figure out what fears there are in there that underpin beliefs that you might not even actually believe. And so a good time to do an acknowledging of fears and an updating of beliefs And also to know that it's not just your own story that you're carrying into your birthing experiences or menopause experience or or menarche or life. As women, we are also taking with us into our rites of passage and our lives whatever the story is of our red thread, which is a shamanic term for our mother line or you might say generational wounds. So. Each one of us, whenever we go through something major, is simply the current version of our mother line having this experience of the story that's been traveling through that like forever. And it doesn't mean that we necessarily have the same births or menstrual experiences or menopauses as our mothers, but there will be a link. And the link will be about the story that's going on through the mother line. And the stories will be things like low self-esteem or depression or addictions or sexual abuse or other kinds of abuse, these sorts of things run in families and I'm I'm sure that everybody knows there's a story that's going on in their line and if they don't, they just need to look at their mother's and grandmother's lives to figure out what they were and to realise that it's at these rites of passage when these things get a chance to have big healings happen. And the way it happens is when somebody in that mother line, that red thread says, this wounding is stopping with me. I'm going to do the inner work required to do the inner healing required to stop perpetuating this, whatever it is. So I think that in terms of our health and therefore the potential healing that we can give thanks for and invite into our childbirth of passage is to actually get really uh, connected to our mother line story and to understand why we do what we do the way we do it and unravel it. And also another big key factor in that is any childhood trauma we've experienced, which is basically the story I can weave back into my thing about surrender and why I didn't do it when I gave birth to Sam because I experienced a lot of other things that would have contributed to this, but as a four year old that I nearly died from and I miraculously recovered. And I I know that what I did was I was, my mother was saying to me, don't give in, hold on, keep going, you know, things like that. So what that as well as other things in my life taught me was to ignore my physical experience and keep going. So like, don't surrender that was the thing about the surrender that Sam's birth taught me that I didn't surrender.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I often think about how this inner work that you talk of and, and the red thread of our relationship to our mother and our grandmother and even beyond, I guess, impacts our experience of pregnancy and birth and then going into menopause as well there's that connection and I guess becoming a grandmother as well there's all these kind of like overlapping cycles that are happening but I'd also like to hear what your thoughts are on navigating the relationships that are kind of closer to home literally in the home (laughs) through those rites of passage so with with other children or with our partners as we go through these rites of passage and how that might change and the role of the father through those?
2: Yeah, important question. So thank you. Like thinking about Menarche, so our first period, The, the we've done lots of research and there's a wonderful publication being made from the research by the Victorian Women's Trust. The book's called About Bloody Time, which shows all the uh, results of the research that we did with interviews and surveys and stuff on women's and girls experience of their menarche menstruation and of uh, menopause and basically the individual that has the biggest impact on a girl's experience at menarch is her mother or is playing the role of her mother if she doesn't have a mother so therein lay a significant thing to think about and a responsibility for mothers with their daughters at their menarche and how they how they welcome them to womanhood because at birth, a baby is programmed to expect that its mother will look after it, like duh. And at menarche, a girl is programmed to expect that her mother and the women in her life will teach her about her body and what to do about it menstruation and in this research that we did it was something like 34 percent of women started their periods not even knowing anything about it you know like nothing and they were terrified they thought they were dying etc etc and that's that's over a third right and that's still happening so there's that and also that it's such an impactful thing what happens at that moment so there that's what mothers need to be watching out for with their daughters and their fathers like so how a father meets his uh, newly menstruating daughter is massively important and it has to be totally asexual it mustn't have anything to do with sex because one of the things we need to be doing as a culture is separating menstruation and fertility like they're connected but they're not the only it's menstruation is not just about fertility it's a whole other thing and mm. so therefore not about fertility therefore not about sex and conceiving and stuff so how a father receives so to speak his fledgling young woman daughter is so important she learns from him how it is how to safely express her sexuality and he must not respond with any sexual sort of reaction. Otherwise, it just confuses the hell out of her and results in all sorts of weirdness. So then at the childbirth rite of passage, so in terms of the relationships with everybody else in the family, so the the siblings, the other children, I think the best thing to to do with siblings is to have them at the birth. So in whatever way that the mother can handle, because The mother must not be worrying about her other children when she's giving birth, otherwise there's no way she's going to surrender and have a baby. And obviously there are various institutions that don't even let siblings in, but whatever, in whatever way you can to involve the children really in the birth will definitely impact their relationship with that baby, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with their mother. So like, that's, it's so obvious, but that's something to very strongly consider and there's lots of beautiful little children's books out now that pre- can prepare them for being at a birth and there's videos to watch so I think we need to prepare children to be at birth but that they should be included in that at the mother's discretion but like you know maybe they they get and and they need to have their own support person so it's not just wandering in and out that because they need to have someone who's on them to help them in whatever way they need but inclusion in the process is what I would always recommend and then in terms of our partners so you know our female partners or our male partners so if it's a lesbian relationship having a baby then obviously that's going to be different to a a heterosexual relationship even in terms of the roles that partner can play because you know women can can lactate even when they haven't had a baby before, so probably need to take some hormones to help them do that. But if they have had babies before, they can relactate as well. So that's a whole other special thing that I'm sure many women may- wish their men could do and can't. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of our partners, like it's so important for our men to be grown ups, and I don't mean that in a put down way, I mean that. Because what happens after, forgetting during for the moment, but after a baby is born, a a new world is created and it's an unknown thing. And that goes for every birth because every birth is different and every new baby is a new baby. So even if you're having your sixth baby, it's still going to be a new world. So the role of the partner is the father is to be the protector And the provider and to not confuse the mother's necessary devotion to her baby to keep it alive as any sort of comment on their relationship or his value or importance or needs. You know, like what I have seen happen and what, you know, can go wrong, so to speak, is that the partners can feel left out or unimportant
1: because i guess as well the men or the partners i should say are also bringing their wounding and their stories to these rites of passage and inadvertently sort of impacting on on the woman right
2: exactly exactly so the inner work for a partner needs to be the same, you know, like, and you will have seen in Ten Moons, there's a whole thing around preparation for birth from sexuality side of things, even about breastfeeding. These sorts of things bring up all our past traumas, including sexual trauma, which is pretty prevalent. So, yeah, the inner work needs to be done by everybody because the last thing a newborn mother needs is anybody hassling her for, You're not paying attention to me anymore, but what about us? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's really important that partners find their niche role in the support that they can give. And it could be, well, like my daughter's just had a baby and her husband is shining in this support role. So she feeds and feeds and feeds and then she's so tired and she can pass it, the baby over to him to burp him she can just sort of rest back maybe even have a sleep and the dad can be there doing his magic burping process <laughs> <laughs> or walk in the hall you know like yeah the the whole sort of singing and patting and helping the baby go back to sleep so the mother can have a little bit of rest as well. That's so important and critical and not a hard thing to do. Yeah, beautiful. I want to pivot a little bit
0: and it's a little bit selfishly. (laughs) So I feel like I was blessed with quite a conscious mother and she did sort of enable a rite of passage and ceremony around my menarche and... Maybe that helped me with my complication-free birth of my beautiful son. So those rites of passages, obviously there's still family trauma threaded through them, I think, but they were mostly quite beautiful experiences. And now I'm nearly 44 and I'm, you know, looking forward to the next rite of passage, which is obviously, you know, closer than the previous one. And even though I feel so equipped physically, emotionally and spiritually to deal with this next rite of passage, I also feel deeply influenced by the collective consciousness around menopause, which is predominantly negative, even in conversations with my girlfriends, you know, that are starting, might be a little bit older than me, that are starting to experience symptoms and I feel like there aren't many voices speaking about this rite of passage, and I know I've heard you speak about this, but I wanted or wondered if you could expand on this rite of passage, which I don't think has near enough time and sort of attention given to it, given the vast number of women in the world right now that are either peri or post or or experiencing menopause. So can you share sort of specifically about this particular rite of passage for us?
2: Yeah, sure. So as a midwife, I thought there's no way there could be anything more transformational than giving birth until I went through menopause. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Dr. Christian Northrup has a wonderful book called The Wisdom of Menopause, which I suggest everybody gets. She's got so many awesome books. You should get all of them. Yes, um, love her. Yeah. So she calls menopause the mother of all wake-up calls and the experience that is designed to heal all the unhealed parts of you and that everything that you've swept under the carpet comes out at menopause. and. That all sounds a bit scary and gruesome, but it's actually necessary because it's an opportunity. It's, it's like a turbocharged opportunity that we have every menstrual cycle. So it's like every menstrual cycle in the days before the blood comes, we have the opportunity to notice everything that we don't want to take into our next cycle. We have the opportunity to notice everything that we need to let go of in our lives that's causing us pain, anguish, health problems, relationship problems, blah, 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 because we can let it go with our blood. So it's a similar experience to that, except it's a longer opportunity. So everything you've swept under the carpet comes out and that includes, you know, the, the habits around drinking and smoking and drug taking that you think you're getting away with, etc. When you get to menopause, it's everything that's toxic in your life is much more obvious. And that's not just chemicals. It's also toxic relationships, toxic relationships with things like food, like at menopause perimenopause because menopause just means the moment that it stops and you never know when it's going to be. Like, you never know when the baby's going to be born. You never know when the menarch's going to happen. You never know when you're going to die. You never know when the last breastfeed's going to be. And you never know when your last period is going to be. But the thing is, the journey is more the perimenopause, as you said, which is like the before and, and after the last period, which is the time when we experience the hormonal changes that give us the physical and emotional and psychological changes. And so the best preparation for all of that is a conscious journey through the mother season because it's the initiation into the autumn season. So what you need to do in preparation for perimenopause is to remember what you learned about yourself through the mother season of your life. So through everything that you've given birth to, and that will include, as I said, things other than human babies. So what, a good process to do in preparation for menopause is to go through chronologically everything and everybody that you've given birth to and figure out what you learned about yourself in that experience. So it might not be something that you did, my example of Sam and surrender, I learned about surrender by not doing it. so it could be that your experiences teaches you something you may learn things like that you have resilience and stuff. But also look a bit deeper, like, what did it teach you in other ways? And it's, it's a process, but it's obvious to the person who's doing it, because they know. So the other thing about that, whatever you learn about yourself giving birth to a child or a business or a career, whatever you learn about yourself, you have to bring into mothering that child or whatever it is. So, in preparation for menopause, recall the sequence of the teachings that you've experienced in those previous birthing rites of passage, because you will need those to negotiate perimenopause because it's the experience that's designed to heal all the unhealed parts of you. And, you know, sometimes women have a a breeze through menopause and some don't and most don't. So the things that you encounter in your experience of menopause will be across every aspect of your life. It'll be to do with your body, your health, your work, your like career-life balance kind of situation, your relationships with your closest people, you know, like your partner and your children and your siblings and whoever you have, you know, the most interactions with. They'll be also to do with your relationship with food and exercise So one of the wonderful little quotes that I have recalled from one of the women who came to one of my autumn woman Harvest Queen workshops about menopause was that she, she had this dawning realization. Oh, I can't live on leftovers and Vegemite sandwiches anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You actually at through menopause, perimenopause, you need to nourish yourself so well. Like, Susan Weed, the wonderful green witch herbalist, has got a wonderful book called—I oh, can't remember what it's called—but it's to do with menopause, and she recommends that you uh, that we do what she calls nourishing infusions, which are herbal herbal infusions that give us the micronutrients that we need on a cellular level to be as healthy as we can, because you know our food doesn't have the the micronutrients that our grandparents' food had because of the soil quality, because of the farming practices. So there's all different ways that we can nourish ourselves beyond eating healthy food. And also exercise. Like you need to be strong. The way you arrive at menopause and go through perimenopause is setting up your life as an older woman. So you need to be strong, like physically strong. So you need to be doing exercise and focused exercise on certain muscle groups like we live such cushy lives like if you imagine what we would have done not that many generations ago just to feed ourselves from gardening we would have such strong bums and we don't have strong bums anymore and so you know look at the think about how many old ladies have to have hip replacements you know it's not probably because of arthritis, it's more because they they don't have the structural muscles around our hips that we're supposed to have to be able to support ourselves. All of these things show up in menopause. In terms of relationships, 40 to 60% of divorces happen around menopause, initiated by women. There's this thing that happens in the menstruating years. It's like this at menarche, a veil descends upon us, a veil of estrogen and progesterone. And estrogen is known as the hormone of accommodation. I sound like I'm taking a piss, but (laughs) it's actually really important because our babies or our businesses, careers, whatever, focusing on babies, they need us to sacrifice ourselves for them. I know that's not a really commonly held belief, but it's true. And my teacher, Janine pavati Baker called mothering bhakti yoga, bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. So this is what estrogen does. It's the hormone that makes us that we give our food to our children, that we sacrifice ourselves for our children because someone has to, right? So the mother is the one. The estrogen and progesterone, that veil is what is over us in a good way because we're richly rewarded for that. Like We feel really good when we do that. So come perimenopause, this veil begins to rise. And so the hormone of accommodation is getting less and, <laughs> less, and less and the most uttered words by women going through perimenopause in the, in the sort of the household family situation are things like, how come I'm the only one who does anything around here? et cetera. And, you know, the most uttered words back to her are, Well, you were okay yesterday, you've changed. And yes, I've changed. So, you know, it's it's so different, very different how it feels to have so so much less estrogen and progesterone. So that's actually worth knowing that the change in terms of your relationship with others and how much you're prepared to sacrifice yourself for them changes. And that's not a bad thing about you. It's what's going on. And, you know, if we look at the very biggest picture of all of this, you know, there's this dreadful situation where scientists have, evolutionary biologists have questioned how, why would it be that human women would live past their fertility? What's the use of them? They've pondered this question and they've come up with a hypothesis. It's called the grandmother hypothesis. And the idea is that it seems, duh, that the children of mothers whose grandmothers are there helping them are more likely to survive because there's another pair of hands and the grandmother can collect food or the mother can collect food and the grandmother can look after the children, blah, blah, blah. So that's just a hypothesis, mind you. So we're still like, the, the scientists are still not sure why human women live beyond their fertility. Like, you know, they're a bit useless. Clearly that's bullshit. <laughs> and the Chinese see menopause, they call menopause a second spring. So, like, that's a very different perspective. Mm. And now, no more than any other time perhaps, grandmothers are so important. Because a lot of mothers have to go to work and the grandmothers can be there to helping them. But in terms of the experience of menopause and what it's like is you begin to remember who you were before you were enculturated into the patriarchal culture of at menarch thinking about how your experience told you that you needed to behave to be a woman. So at menopause, women often awaken from the slumber. And that's the positive way of it, and the negative is the empty nest syndrome, where like their whole purpose in life is gone. So what the hell are they going to do with themselves? Mm-hmm. And um, Christian North, Dr. Christian Northrup suggests at that point that women try and remember what they were interested in before they their periods started. That could be what they might be able to return to, which is a cool thing to think about. But also the other thing about postmenopausal women now is well according to Jane Fonda in one of her podcasts it's the largest demographic in the world western world is postmenopausal women so that's a that's a force to be rallied so my teacher Cedar Barstow taught me that the postmenopausal life season that there is another one before crone so crone is the winter the wise old woman but after mother and before crone is the autumn woman. So marga is the term that she taught me, which is the female version of the male life season, which is the magus, the magician. So marga or enchantress or grandmother or matriarch or queen or sovereign woman, whatever she is, the postmenopausal woman is someone who has a lot more time and energy on her hands. And one of the amazing things that happens postmenopause is that the two hormones that are about ovulation change jobs and increase in uh, their level and stay there. And that's luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. And the effect of that postmenopausally is that postmenopausal women have an increased visionary capacity and increased intuition. So that's very cool and also much more powerful orgasms, by the way. (laughs) So so these postmenopausal women with increased intuition and visionary capacity are exactly who we need now. Mm, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, Sarah, menopause will be the rite of passage you need to have to heal all the unhealed parts of you. And like everybody, you know, that will include a lot of red thread stuff. Mm. so it doesn't get passed on and down and further on and also to remember what you learned about yourself in giving birth so you can do that through the next rite of passage.
0: Oh,
2: that's beautiful. Thank you. I feel
0: optimistic.
1: (laughs) I've got a random question. I saw a post that you did a few months ago about the removal of pubic hair and... I wonder if you could talk to that for a minute, if you know what I'm
2: talking about. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now I'm not going to remember because that's another postmenopausal thing. You don't remember everything. <laughs> and that's okay. So I'm not going to remember all the stats. Yeah, and there's a lot of women writing about this now, which is really cool. But pubic hair has a role. Who would have thought? <laughs> Just like a foreskin has a role. So pubic hair... Has all manner of roles, the least of which is protection against infection. And I don't mean the least. I mean, like one of the most important things is that it's like a barrier uh, between the outside and the inside of us for infection, because the hair gathers any of the germs. It's like a filter in that way, and it's also cushions the clitoris and the and the vulva cushions a cushioning effect so that it's uh, for any sort of trauma, like a minimal but significant in its own way too. And it's also part of the pheromone uh, distribution, you know, like the hormones that travel through the air from us that are sending signals to other people that the hair is, is part of that story too. So the first thing about pubic hair removal is to realise or remember that it's there for a reason. And the removal of pubic hair If you shave it, it has the potential of causing trauma on the skin and then there's no hair there to protect the the skin. And then in terms of all the other ways of removing that are permanent or semi-permanent, then they have their hazards. But the other like a bit creepy thing about it is that there's only one age female who has no pubic hair and that's a prepubescent female. And so in having a fashion that has grown women present their vulva as a prepubescent, immature, feminine thing, that's a bit creepy to me that that's seen as the ideal thing. And, you know, porn is is where a lot of these images are seen. You know, porn is the sex education for most teenagers these years. And so boys and girls are looking at porn and seeing hairless vulvas and uh, thinking that that's what they've got to look like because that's what sexy means. And boys are growing up thinking that girls, that women don't have pubic hair because in porn they don't, mostly. I mean, I don't know. I don't look at porn. I don't know if there's any pubic hair in porn myself. But girls are feeling pressured to, to look like Horn stars because that's what the boys want. And encouraging prepubescent vulvas as sexy is encouraging bloody yucky stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's pretty problematic when you really boil it down.
0: Um, I feel like we're coming up to an hour now, so we should probably start to wrap. Mandy, do you have any closing comments or questions.
1: I'd love for you, Jane, to share where people can find all of your good stuff, resources and books and events and all of that.
2: Thanks. So I've got a website, uh, janehardwickcollings.com, and I've got lots of blog posts on there with all kinds of information and that's also where you can see my event calendar and workshops and what's going on in them and um, where they are and all of that kind of stuff. And also the schoolofshamanicwomancraft.com is Women's Mystery School that I founded. So that has its own website and you can go on there and see what other workshops from other teachers who have trained in the school are giving and also the Four Seasons Journey, the year-long training program that happens in various places around Australia and also in the UK and many other places overseas that we've got them scheduled for including Mexico and New Zealand and France and Italy and Spain and wherever we can do them. And so my books are also up on my website and I'm going to be releasing next week with the new moon, so that's in um, mid-March, a Pregnancy the Inner Journey e-course, which Oof. is very <laughs> exciting and um, there's also a, a module within it that you can Do separately or combined, which is about healing after previous traumatic birth too, which is we haven't even talked about, but is a massive importance. Mm. So the pregnancy e course is coming up soon, which I'm really excited about. So yeah, that's all on my website. Those things, Instagram and Facebook, as you mentioned before, I got all kinds of things happening on there, including a a special little campaign called "Waking the Witches," which is about Truth alerts to help women wake up from their patriarchal slumber and remove their cloak of forget. And one of the things we're doing soon is Nilly Ready is a comic book for everybody, but targeted towards teenage girls. That's really exciting as well mm-hmm. along this waking the witches kind of idea. And now here in this situation we're in globally with a pandemic upon us. I'm also dreaming up how I with others can support all the pregnant mamas with heading into birthing in the pandemic and mm. you know, what to do about that, what to avoid, what to what to do, what to not do. And I don't know what we'll do, but I'm dreaming up things like hotline to call when you're giving birth, you know, maybe even like MASH style birth centers in areas, I don't know, but something's going to have to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Wanting to help however I can. Mm, Thank you so much
0: for talking to us. I feel like we literally could have kept going for another three hours and perhaps we might have to get you back on the show to sort of dive more deeply into some of the topics that we covered today because you're an amazing wealth of just amazing and super important information. So thank you so much for your time and we will share all of the links to all of the amazing resources that you've created over the you know decades that you've been working so thanks
2: jane thank you sarah thank you amanda i guess there's one thing i could just extra add is the her story which is um oh yes yeah so that's available i've recorded it as an audio book and it's on my website you can buy it for three dollars but you can also just download the pdf for free it's in my profile on instagram and that's basically a compilation of all of the things that have happened to the feminine as a result of the patriarchal culture. And when I say feminine, I'm not just talking about women, right? I'm talking about the men have a feminine aspect too. So it's not just women, but the feminine. So that's something that everybody should read. Mm,
1: I listened to the audio a few weeks ago and it is incredibly confronting at some points and so important for us to have that context it's yeah i really thank you for creating that and making it so available
2: Mm, thanks important like you know there's that classic thing if you Mm -hmm. want to know where you're headed look where you've come from Mm -hmm. well thank you both so much thank you thank you so much. much
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Elevate. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it. For any further updates with me, you can come along and follow me at Instagram. I'm at at ShopkinsHealth.
1: And if you'd like to stay tuned with me throughout the week, I'm at yoga underscore alchemy on Instagram. And what we would love right now is if you can hit subscribe, leave us some stars, leave us a few words, any questions or feedback. We love to read. So keep it coming and have an amazing day.